You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Hey guys, it would help us a ton if you would just take a few seconds, go down to the rating and reviews in Apple Podcasts, and leave us a five-star review. It helps us get in front of more hunters that need to hear our message. Appreciate it, you guys. Now let's get into the episode. First off, uh, for everyone listening, welcome back to the Hunter's Advantage podcast. And Josh, uh, thanks again for coming on, brother. I really appreciate it. Uh, how's your day going so far today? You know, just like the last couple of days, it's been a lot of planning for the fall. There's a crazy amount of stuff going on, not only with Hunt Stand, but also just with the, the hunts I have to plan for some of the content projects we're shooting. And I don't, I don't have, I don't get to plan my personal hunts. Those just kind of happen when they happen if i'm lucky but otherwise it's all mainly for content creation so it's been really busy yeah. and all that kind of stuff right right so for people that aren't familiar you're still you're still the vp of content at hunt stand correct yeah content guy <laughs> yeah well <laughs> to me it looks like you're out there having fun hunting and doing all that stuff but i'm sure there's a lot of editing and back-end stuff that you guys you got to do throughout the week when you're not actually out there hunting it's uh yeah it's it's instagram versus reality right <laughs> of course so what speaking of the fall that's a good place to start what what do you guys got going on in the fall what uh what hunts do you have planned well um right now some of the some of the bigger ones that we've got planned for shooting um are two tags i did not expect to draw so i was coordinating my entire season around not getting these tags and then I drew both of them. So I, I was actually fortunate to draw a unit 15 archery elk tag in New Mexico. First time I've ever put in for it. I think, I don't even know what the, the draw odds were, to be honest with you. My friend invited me on the hunt and I didn't even know what I was getting into. He just said, hey, you want to do this? We got to apply right now. I didn't even look at what it was. I just said, sure, I'll apply. He's mm -hmm. like, we're probably not going to get it, but we might as well give it a shot. So we drew that and people have been coming out of the woodwork. Uh, apparently it's a it's a really premium tag. I almost feel bad because I don't, I, I don't yet have a f judging by the number of people who are like, you got unit 15. Uh, I guess it's a pretty big deal. So I, I'm, I'm really blessed to get that one. And then I also got a, a Rocky mountain bighorn U rifle tag for Colorado, which again, I did not expect to draw. Um, so that's going to be an experience in itself. We'll be hunting well, somewhere in that 11 to 13,500 foot range. Oh yikes! That'll definitely be fun. What a so when you put in for the the U or the U, is it a do you put in for a ram or an U, or is it just you were actually trying to get the the female tag? I was trying to get that tag. Yeah, um, it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit uh, complicated when you when you try to get into that uh, with Colorado, but um, if you do your research. You know, believe it or not, there are some opportunities. And for me, this is like, I never thought I'd be able to hunt 
a bighorn sheep at all, ram or ewe, in the lower 48 as a non-resident. I'm from Minnesota. Um, last I checked, we don't have any bighorns here. I know there's, there's some over in like North and South Dakota right next door, but we don't have rams. We don't have, we don't have bighorn sheep here. Um, so I just never anticipated that that would even be an option. I figured maybe as a pipe dream, I'd be able to go after a doll sheep or something in Alaska. That's, that's not hard to get a tag, but the, the cost is the prohibitive factor for that. So I guess the fact that I get to, to go after a bighorn sheep, let alone in the lower 48, I, I still can't believe it. So that's really what I've been focusing most of my energy on trying to get prepared for not only the physical side and the scouting and hunting, but also the video production. Yeah. That, that won't be a lot of fun. What always is kind of interesting to me about the sheep hunts is like, like you're talking about, um, a lot of them I think are once in a lifetime draws. And then on top of that, if you do draw one, you're going to want to take advantage of that short season with an outfitter. And I've looked at some of the outfitter costs and I've seen some like North of 30 grand for a sheep for a Ram. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, um, well, Colorado, for instance, basically I've missed the boat. Like if I, if I ever wanted to get a Ram tag as a non-resident, it's like something around 25 years wait. So mm -hmm. I made the mistake. There's, there's a lot of tags that I have not been putting in for that I should have been a long time ago, but you know, I'm, I'm 36 right now. And when you're in that 18 to 25 range, at least, at least, uh, it seems like most folks, you don't start thinking about that kind of stuff. And then by then it, you, you end up getting into the, into the range of, of, uh, weights for drawing those tags that, you're not going to be physically capable of doing the hunt. So if it took me 25 years, if I started putting in for a bighorn right now for a ram, uh, I'll be 61 years old. But that's that's not taking into account point creep, just because you know a lot of these a lot of these uh, limited entry tags, the point creep just keeps on going up. So it requires more and more points every year. So people are chasing those tags, and um, yeah, I mean, you, you really got to not only think about yourself in terms of the long term, if you want to do some of those hunts, but also if you've got kids or if you've got maybe somebody that you're mentoring or a nephew or a niece or whatever it is, um, you know, forget about uh, contributing to their college fund. Maybe think about helping them get into some tag draws when they're younger, because it's it's just getting less accessible for, for those premium tags. and. I mean, who knows where it's going to be in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, but it's, it's even getting bad enough right now that you really got to think ahead, like anywhere from 15 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a we have a small like elk population in southwest Oklahoma. And the draw odds, I think, are uh, you get every 25 years like and that that's just it's crazy to me that it takes that long and it's a once in a lifetime draw. So like if you draw out for a cow in that time, you can't ever go get a bull again, which kind of stinks. And I don't know with this social media thing going and just everybody, everybody's in these forums telling everybody to apply for this tag and sharing these awesome hunts. And it's just getting, it's getting tough for these, uh, you know, these limited and entries for people to enter. I just now started entering and I'm 24 and I wish I would have been entering since I was like 15. I could have, I could have it nine points by now. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, 
it's really interesting, man, especially, um, I mean, the entire world has been flipped upside down and turned inside out during the past year, year and a half with the COVID and um, hunting has has definitely seen that toll as well. Um, it's it's a double-edged sword for sure. We see a lot more participation, but then we see a lot more participation. So mm -hmm. for instance, I didn't expect to draw those tags. Those are just, that was just luck that I got those. But then the one tag that I was counting on that I was also planning my season around, I didn't draw. And it classically, historically, it's always been uh, undersubscribed. That particular unit for antelope is what I'm talking about. And so it's been a guaranteed draw for forever. But this year, for the first time, um, two of four of us, including myself and our party, didn't get a tag for that unit. I mean, I thought I had it in the bank. So it really, it really makes you um, realize how much you take for granted and also how quickly things can change. And also another point to consider is we always talk about like the good old days or we, you know, we think about maybe planning stuff out into the future. Well, certain hunts that might be accessible right now might not be accessible in a year, let alone five years, 10 years or something like that. So it's like, it's a difficult balance trying to figure out, you know, planning your hunts for years, years in advance and prioritizing. Um, it's, it's impossible to predict how things are going to change, but I guess the moral of the story is you really need to jump on opportunities as fast as you can because the quote unquote good old days for a lot of these hunts might be right now and you don't even know until it's too late. Yeah, for sure. Where did you guys, uh, or what state were you guys looking to go after antelope? Uh, I was trying to get, it's an annual trip that we've been doing and, um, it's in, it's in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, more antelope than people in the state of Wyoming and the biggest population of antelope anywhere in the country and, um, or pronghorn, I should say. And, uh, yeah, I just was, I couldn't believe when I pulled up my draw results the other day that I didn't. So I've been scrambling to, there is a neighboring unit that has some surplus tags left, but it's like the tags that are left are private land only. Mm -hmm. And that heavily, or that that area is heavily saturated by outfitters. So most of the private ranches already have outfitting. Outfitters are super booked um, from the COVID effect, as I'm calling it. Uh, yeah. They're booked for two reasons. There's more participation. And um, in some cases, depending on the species in the state, outfitters are having to make up for losing a year from people who couldn't travel uh, either on their own accord or because the state shut it down. So there's a backlog in a lot of places in addition to more people coming in and it hasn't really slowed down. Uh, if you look at what the tag draws have been doing and the, the number of applicants, um, it was not just an immediate wave that we saw going into the two, 2020 season. It's, it's still going. So there's no telling how long it will go. Of course, a lot of those people are going to probably phase out, but if you really think about it, if you're talking about any of the draw hunts, my theory is most of the people who are coming in and are new and active, first of all, they're, they're limited in experience and a lot of them might not even know that there is such thing as a draw hunt. So my feeling is um, a lot of the new hunters who came in during COVID are probably just doing all the over-the-counter over opportunities, you know, Eastern whitetails and turkeys 
and waterfall and small game, the stuff that's easy to get into and easy to access. And I think where we're seeing the main influx of activity for, um, you know, more people putting in for these limited entry hunts and these tag draws is just, it, it, we kind of uh, woke up the sleeping giant, if you will, in the regard that I think there are a lot of hunters out there who maybe didn't have the time or the money previously, but now people are able to work from home. Um, in that first year, a lot of people uh, maybe didn't even have a job, but they still had revenue coming in from the, the government checks and um, the security that they got from whatever their state offers for unemployment. So people had more time on their hands. And I clearly that wasn't just 2020. It's, it's extending into this year. Or perhaps a lot of folks got out in 2020 and realized, man, I really need to like – why haven't I been making this priority? This is this is the greatest thing. I, I love hunting. So lazy about it the last few years. And I think a lot of people got reinvigorated last year. So that's also carrying over. So there's a lot of different dynamics to this. But the bottom line is more people are out there. Um, access isn't really increasing. Well, at the same time, activity is tag tag applicants, everything. So it's it's a really big shift, especially just in the course of a year. Yeah, for sure. I, I, it's cool that you're seeing some of these similar things because uh, one of the spots that we hunt um, for public land for deer in southeast Oklahoma, uh, we when we go out, we'll see one, two, maybe three different tents while we're hunting, and this is a twenty acre or twenty thousand acre parcel, and so the hunting pressure is just extremely low during deer season. And we were talking to the biologist um, at the end of or at the end of deer season, and we're like, hey, we're thinking about coming back and hunting turkey because we had got turkey all over our trail cameras and he was like good luck brother and i was like what do you mean and he said well last year we had uh five it's only a two-week season because in the southeast part of the state is eastern birds they're eastern turkey and so we only have a two-week season for them unlike the rio which is like a month and so he said during that two-week season there was 500 hunters in that twenty thousand acres and he said they took 15 birds and he knows for a fact five of them were Jake's. And he was like, if you want to come back to the war zone during that two weeks, he's like, you go ahead. But this same property that we hunt all fall I actually killed this buck over here in the middle last year in that place. And we've seen, I never ran into a hunter the entire time has 500 turkey hunters in it during a two week period. Right. And I don't know if that's a result of COVID or people having off people, people having money to go do hunts, but it's, it's just absolutely insane. The amount of hunter participation that I've seen as a result of this. Yeah. I'd have to say in that scenario, if you didn't see a lot of people out whitetail hunting, um, it had to have been more for that particular area had to have been, had to have been a timing thing because that, that spring time frame was when, I mean, when I went, when I was out Turkey hunting last year, I saw the same exact thing. It was just like, there were so many people out in all the, all the regular spots that I go public land. It was just like, I couldn't even believe it. Like I heard, I had heard people talking about it before I actually got out myself. And then I saw it from my own, with my own two eyes. And uh, it wasn't even just a lot of the areas I was going to, it wasn't even just hunters. There was just people out there, hiking around and I'm, I'm not even talking about like your typical hiking places like we have in minnesota and wisconsin we've got a lot of great places where you can go hike and there's designated trails and um you know there's 
there's sites that people want to see and it's it's like there's a hiking community around it i'm talking there were people out in like wildlife management areas you know driving a prius getting out and walking out there in their tennis shoes during turkey season and i was just like man this is this is nuts like people a lot of people i think realize like oh there's this there's this public land stuff that we can just go out onto you know and i, I think uh people just had so much time on their hands and they, they were so bored a lot of the non-hunters that they just went for they went for a walk in the woods not knowing that there's guys out there trying to shoot turkeys yeah we were shed hunting on this same piece and we passed two jeeps just filled with kids and their parents and they had like eight bikes on the back and i was like we've got so much land for bike trails and lakes and you know parks and all this stuff and they're coming out to the middle of nowhere to ride our bikes <laughs> while people are scouting for turkey and hunting i was like man this is just so weird i've never seen any people out here um so it's it's just a weird time man it sure is uh, if there's a if there's a positive i think there are several positives um it's it's hard to not look at it selfishly you know you hunt spots or you don't see people and next thing you know you see people i mean you, you just have to adapt that's the way it is participation is at the end of the day is always a good thing and uh, a better thing if you look at the whole scheme of it but uh yeah i just think uh psychologically it's it's very positive too just people who spent a lot of time indoors who finally you know had so much time on their hands that they got bored and they decided to go outside um it's it's good for the soul it's i think it uh is a, a major stress reliever there's so many different positive things and how it affects just the general public. I mean, I even remember seeing shortly after COVID started a newscast out of like St. Paul or Minneapolis. And I thought it was the weirdest thing, but it was a, it was a reporter interview with a white, with a um, woman and her two kids just like out on a weekday, hanging out in a forest in their neighborhood. And the, the reporter was out there with them. And she's just like, the, the mom was like, yeah, we didn't even know that this was here and the kids just love being out here so much. And there's, she's like, there's not really anything out here, just a bunch of trees, but they just love coming out here. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in us to want to be out there and doing those things. And especially with, with kids, you know, you open their eyes up to that for the first time and they're going to be addicted immediately. And there's, there's really no way to even explain what that is. Uh, it's just, it's something inside of us most people want to be out there. It's just a lot of them never get a chance to see it because they're not exposed to it. Right. My hope would be just that the people that are becoming exposed to this as a result of, of COVID or just a abundance of time is that they just could get plugged in with someone that could like mentor them for hunting. Like what a cool opportunity of like, Hey, you, you, you already like being out here. Let, let me show you what, how we utilize this land and like how we, uh, hunt things on public land. I think that'd be really neat as a result of this COVID thing. Yeah, that's the thing, man. It's, uh, yeah, all these people can, can run out there right now, but, um, just like with any aspect of hunting mentorship and new hunters, like somebody does have to hold their hand or a, a lot of them are just, they're going to have a bad experience because it, it really is overwhelming. It's a lot to get into. Um, even just understanding how licenses work. I've talked to so many people who don't hunt, 
who don't even know that there's such thing as a hunting license. They think you just go out there during the fall and you, you shoot stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's very important for people to, to be led down the right path. It's just a matter of, um, you know, everybody kind of has to step up and, and do their work and, and have a part in that. And it's, it's a collective effort. I mean, sure. One guy could go out there and try to mentor 10 or 20 people, but it's going to be a lot more effective if, 10 or 20 hunters go mentor 10 or 20 people because it's, it's not just bringing them out one time and kind of showing them the ropes. You got to guide them through the whole damn process or otherwise it's just, it becomes a failure. And that's what a lot of the R3 programs have seen. You know, they've, they've tried, you know, maybe holding a class for a weekend or something like that to get people introduced, but they see that the retention is, is terrible because they need somebody there almost like a, a sponsor for like Alcoholics Anonymous or something like you need <laughs> that person to be there on the other end of the phone when you call or able to meet up with you to support you as you're going through that process or otherwise you just a lot of people just fall off the, the wagon. Right. Yeah, that's kind of one of the goals that I've tried to set for myself and try to encourage some of my friends to do is just like commit to taking one person for a full weekend and trying to get them their first deer or their first turkey or their first duck or whatever it is that they're interested in. Um, and I think if collectively you do that as a whole, we can make a really big impact. I mean, it's so frustrating. Deer hunting is already so frustrating and hunting's frustrating for people that are what you would qualify good at it. Like I already want to quit sometimes and, and I enjoy it. So I couldn't imagine people that are just trying to get started in the sport and know absolutely nothing about it. I mean, um, so I just think that's a big, that's an important part of it. And it's, it's got, it's, it's good to hear that other people are on that same page. And of course, there's always the element of, of, you know, media. It's just, it's, uh, it's, it's, it can be pretty toxic for new hunters, especially social media when you're, you're going through a feed every day and all you're seeing is the highlights and the success. And you know, if you're watching TV or videos, I mean, a lot of, content producers have done a better job now of, of showing failures and showing people the whole process, but most of it is still a highlight reel. So you get somebody, somebody new out there and they don't even see an animal for one, two, three, four, five sits or something. Um, it's easy for them to get, to become dejected. That's why you got to get them really hooked on the entire process. And it's not an easy thing to do. Um, I'm still learning myself after, 20 some years to really embrace the process in, in a, in a genuine manner. And, um, like even just going for a hike to prepare for some of these hunts, it's like, like years ago, I looked at it as like, man, this sucks. I just have to do this, but I don't really enjoy it. Well, now I'm to a point where I somehow I've made myself enjoy it, where I like look forward to it as part of the process, you know, where it becomes more of a lifestyle than just, an activity that you set aside a few days or a week or however long, you know, per year to go hunting. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's tough, but it's also promising that so many people do show interest now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I say all this, but I'm admittedly pro if, if my friends listen to this, they're going to be like, dude, you're full of shit. Cause you're the best mentor ever. I'm a terrible hunting mentor <laughs> because I'm so intense. It's, very difficult for me to dial it back when I bring somebody new out 
Um, I really have to get in the right state of mind, but there's just always a switch that flips on inside of me where I kind of just, I find myself like I just go into full predator mode and mm-hmm. somebody who's with me is not ready for that. So, um, not even, not even being a mentor is easy, let alone right. a hunter. It's, it's, if someone goes with me, I go from, you know, first 15 minutes trying to be low key to, you know, 20 minutes into it, giving them the stink eye every time they break a stick with their foot or something, you know, like <laughs> right. it's hard for me to dial it back. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm sure we're all like that in some, in some ways, but Hey, I'm interested in this, this antelope thing. Are, are you guys doing a, uh, a, do you guys do an annual bow hunt there or an annual rifle hunt or what does it look like? If it was an annual bow hunt, we would, I would have had no problem finding somewhere to go. And even still there are places, there are opportunities for archery hunters. Um, it's, it's a rifle hunt. So, mm-hmm. um, the bulk of my, I've only gone archery antelope hunting three times. It's it's all been in Montana. Um, I know that particular area. It's it's become more difficult to get archery tags, but there are other places left still where people could get archery tags, um, even even post draw. Um, Nebraska is a pretty good example. Um, it's a, a lot of people don't think of antelope in Nebraska, but there are, and there are archery opportunities for non-residents. Um, rifle opportunities, there aren't any. Uh, as far as I know, unless somebody tells me differently, you cannot get a rifle tag in, in Nebraska for an antelope as a non-resident. But for archery, um, you could go out there in October and just buy one over the counter and, and go hunting. Now, there's there's a limited population, but that's just one example of, of uh, some antelope opportunities that are still left yeah well we we have i just asked because i've gotten this this kind of this little bug for for hunting antelope like i had never hunted them before but in 2019 we went on a a bow hunt in the panhandle of oklahoma and there's a small antelope population out there um and it's way out in the western panhandle like absolutely nothing out there and uh and then we went on a rifle hunt for antelope in I th- maybe it was even the same year and we ended up taking four does, but it's only a landowner tag out there. Like, uh, if you want to draw in to hunt out there, it's, it's a 10 year process to getting a thing, but we, we hunted them out there with a bow and man, that is some of the most fun and most frustrating hunting I've ever done. Especially when you're walking through six inch grass and you see an animal 800 yards away. And it's honestly weird hunting antelope because they it's almost like they're okay with you getting close to a certain extent like you get around it's like a 200 yard bubble and like they'll watch you walk straight up to them to 200 yards and once you cross like a certain line in that bubble they're just like yeah i'm not i'm done with this now and they just all run off it's so frustrating i mean have you experienced that too 100 percent, and i'd say that that 2 250 range is is pretty accurate and uh for that matter um, I've also, you know, when I have bow hunted them, I've, I've tried decoying them and, and I was successful at decoying them. I'm just not successful at getting a shot. Um, there's also a bubble with that. It seems like we're right about that 70, 75 yard mark. A lot of them will hang up just like a turkey would maybe hang up at 50, 60, 70 yards. Um, I experienced that a lot and 
I've only, I, I say a lot, and it actually was a lot if you think about it, because even though I've only done three archery antelope hunts, um, we were able to get a lot of action. I mean, we were able to get an average of like 10 stalks a day because there were there was so much ground to work with and so many animals that we would just try to work one group. And if that failed, just move on to the next one all day over and over again. And uh, yeah, it's, they, they definitely have their bubble. Um, one thing that people overlook and actually uh, I overlooked initially is, I mean, they are super vocal. So um, if you bring an antelope call with you and you're trying to decoy them, you know, sometimes that can pull them the extra distance to give them that realism that they need. But I don't know how much you experienced it, but they they have quite a vocabulary and they talk a lot during the rut. Interesting. I don't know if we were hunting the peak. I think we were a little post rut. So when we popped up our decoy bow hunting, like it is so hard to bow hunt them without a decoy because um, you're just completely exposed. And they see it's uh, the guy I was talking to that owns an 80,000 acre ranch that we hunt out, hunt on out there. He was saying they're, they don't feel super threatened by stuff that's really low to the ground. But like the second that you pop up off the ground, they're like, oh, hell no. Like I'm, I'm gone. So when you pop up with that decoy, it's, I haven't, I haven't experienced anything as far as them being vocal, but they're so reactive to that decoy. Like I couldn't imagine using it on anything else, but like we popped one up at 300 yards. And the second that this, this, uh, antelope saw it, he just sprinted right at us all the way into like 75 yards. And then he stopped and he's just like eyeing us. And back then, I mean, I had, I was just shooting a four pin sight on my bow and I'm like, gosh, he's forever away. And that, I mean, in 50 yards is a long shot with a bow. And that was my range, but he was standing out at like 76, 79 yards, something like that. And just nowadays, uh, just through my experiences with an antelope, I'm just like, I feel comfortable taking that shot at, at 79 yards on an antelope, but they're just such an interesting animal. They're so reactive to the decoy and it's, it's so cool to be able to spot and stalk them in that sort of terrain. They're just, it, it amazed me every time I saw them charge into a decoy, like, I never would have expected that. It's unbelievable, man. Um, I just primarily for, for work related reasons, um, I've gravitated more toward a rifle during the last five years. Um, that was kind of when I stopped bull hunting antelope just cause I couldn't, I couldn't fit it in my schedule. And a lot of my obligations were related to rifle hunting, but I really, really want to get back out there. I, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever had a more fun hunt than bow hunting antelope during the rut. I mean, like what you said about how they react to decoys, it's freaking remarkable. Like just getting charged by one of those things and seeing that dust cloud coming at you, uh, especially if we're talking like, you know, there were a couple instances where we decoyed them from a mile or two away. And you just see this white speck coming from the horizon full speed. And they'd come in and um it's it's all it's it's actually kind of intimidating just because <laughs> like the damn thing might just run you over but you know even if they even if they're coming in aggressively and if they're going to come into a, a closer bull range they still usually from my experience they'll stop at a certain distance whether it's 20 yards or 70 yards they'll stop and then they'll pace back and forth broadside and uh, I don't know what the, I don't know what the final trigger is to bring them in that extra distance when they do that. I, I think the calling can help. Um, I think it depends on their mood. I think 
Sometimes maybe they're just sizing you up. Um, sometimes they maybe don't believe believe that the decoy is real. I don't know. But when those things come running at you, it's and it, the fact that you are out in the wide open and you're just hiding behind this decoy, it's like it seems like a miracle that it works. It's it's different, like, you know, people who are calling or decoying elk in the timber or something where you have some cover around you can and you can actually blend in. It's like, okay, I could see how they could buy that and close the distance. But when you're out there in the middle of a a thousand acre pasture or something, and this thing just comes running right up to you and you're just, you know, a lot of times a decoy is smaller than you. I mean, usually depending on what kind you're using and they just, they buy it, man. Even, even some of the guys who just use a white t-shirt or a rag or whatever to, to flag them in. Um, they just, they get super aggressive and yeah, I, I love those animals. I, I'm, I'm very sad that I don't get to hunt them this year. Very sad. Well, I've even seen the guys wear the, uh, they wear that hat on their head. That's like, it's got, uh, the prong horns coming yeah. out and they'll just like kind of move like an antelope and they'll, they'll react to that too. It's just, that's so crazy to me. Yes. It, be the decoy is the company that makes yeah. that. And, uh, I don't own one, but next time I bow hunt antelope, I'm absolutely buying one. I mean, <laughs> I'll buy the, I think they also sell like a shirt or something. Mm-hmm. Like I'm putting on the full suit next time. No doubt. Cause if they, <laughs> you look goofy as hell and you wouldn't want to do it during a rifle season. Mm-hmm. Oh God. No. <laughs> <laughs> What's what I thought was really cool about antelope too, is the, the fact that like the terrain that they inhabit, you could, you could get multiple stocks on a single buck. Like you could F up a stock, come at him from a different angle, hit him with the decoy there. He doesn't like it. Come at it from a different angle and you see him run off. And usually you see him run off and you see him bed down again. You're like, all right, here we go. Let's try this again. And it's just, it's so cool. Cause like, if you have a buck that has a certain characteristic, like we were hunting this buck, we called the heart buck, like his pronghorns, they came in and they were like shaped like a heart at the tips. And so we just knew him. We could we could get a stock on him, mess it up, and then come back at him from a different angle. And that's so cool because you screw it up in the whitetail woods, it, it, good luck. I mean, you're not going to chase that sucker through timber. You're not going to find it. But in antelope, you can just like retarget them, and it's it's such an active style of hunting. I just really enjoy that part of it. It is. It's it's so visual. I mean, if you're if you're hunting somewhere that has any reasonable population, I mean there's no reason you should ever go an hour without being able to see one to um, at least see one. And you might not be able to hunt it if you can't get on the ground or something, but you're just constant. They're so visible just out there. And, and that's just, that's their defense mechanism. They hang out in the wide open because they can see everywhere and nothing can get to them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that gets me fired up. But one of my buddies is he's got the, uh, He's got the antelope bug, and we were talking about going and hunting velvet muleys, and he's like, no, screw that. I want to go hunt an antelope again because we <laughs> were bow hunting. So he was like, do what? Are you guys going to go? Yeah, I think we're going to go not this year, but next year. We've got kind of a nice setup. We got a guy out in the panhandle who owns 80,000 acres out there. So he's got several, maybe maybe thousands. I know several hundred antelope out there, and um we did rifle with him i believe it was either 19 or or last year and uh shot four four doe antelope and man i really want to go get a buck with my bow so i think we'll end up doing that next year we've got a lot of stuff on the calendar already for whitetail but i'd like to have one more really good whitetail year of just hitting it hard before 
starting to branch out into the Western game. Cause I do want to do the, the North American super slam, the 29 big game animals. And I feel like antelope and mule deer are the lowest hanging fruit as, as far as like where I live. Yeah. And I mean, for that matter, it's like they are the lowest hanging fruit. So it's, it's tempting to want to just knock them off right away. And they are, they are good entry level, you know, to, to build your skills and stuff for some of the other more challenging game. But at the same time, they're, knock on wood, they're going to be there. So, you know, like we were talking about before, some of those other opportunities that are just going to continue to dwindle, you might want to think about knocking those out quicker. Cause I mean, assuming that shit doesn't completely hit the fan, antelope and mule deer will, will probably be reasonably accessible in our lifetimes. Right. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, that's a good point because I feel like we've got a, a good enough in out with the antelope that we could, it, it could, it could turn into an every year thing. I mean, the guy we, we hunt with, he's like, Hey, you, uh, you don't tell anybody about this. We'll get to do this every year. And he's like, if you keep telling, if you give someone my number and they keep calling me, we ain't going to go. And I'm like, all right, that sounds, that well, sounds good. That was going to be, so I have to ask, even though it's, uh, it's, it's landowner. So is, is it a landowner tag that you're buying from him? It is, but, um, so at, no, actually for the does, it wasn't landowner tags. So we had to purchase those off of him. He said that he gets like 10 doe tags a year landowner, and then they'll get one buck tag as a, as a landowner with 80,000 acres, they get one buck tag with a rifle and it's like, man, that sucks. So they can, they usually keep that one for the family, but with a, uh, with a bow tag, you can actually, I have a lifetime license in Oklahoma, so it comes with your, your lifetime license and you don't have to have a, uh, a landowner tag for, for, with a bow. So it's kind of an interesting system. So it's tough to hunt them with a rifle because the tags are so slim. I wonder, is that, is that archery tag only, only available to residents? I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if it is. I'm not sure, but it's a, Gosh, it's cool. It's that, that land just kind of, it like flows directly into the Northeast corner of New Mexico and you, there's no really dividing line and terrain and it just, man, you get out there and you can just see forever. It makes you feel so small because you can see, I think it's like 10 miles from New Mexico, but it's, it's some really cool habitat. I, I don't know though on the, as far as the non-resident tag, that'd be something to check into. I know there's not a pu lot of public out there, but this guy owns, they have so much land in their family. It's crazy. Well, I heard about some guy out there who has like 80,000 acres. Uh, I don't know. Just someone. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so man, I, I, so I saw your video series that you guys have been doing, um, on the hunt stand YouTube channel. Is it, is it Turkey posse or is it posse? Uh, the, the, the title is posse, but just, Really, nobody knows what that means. So a lot of times we just we'll use the turkey posse hashtag or refer to it as that. Just so at least in the first year, so people can get familiar with it. But yeah, we just launched that. Uh, I guess it, it started early April. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're excited about that. Uh, we're going to continue it, and um, I've got four full hunts in the can for next season because what we learned was. So much of the turkey content is consumed from February to early April. It's it's constantly been like moving back. Back in the day, it was like people didn't start watching stuff until, you know, 
mid mid to late March, early April. And now it's like people are starting to watch stuff in February. So we wanted to save some of the hunts to release earlier next year and get people going. And then we'll still continue to record them throughout the season. Hmm. So what was the, where'd the idea of the, uh, or the desire to do a video series around Turkey come from? Well, uh, Turkey hunting is my a number one passion. Um, for a number of reasons, probably not a lot else going on in the spring and it's just so accessible. So it just kind of by default, um, became my number one passion. Um, it's, it's not, you can't really put it apples to apples against other stuff. It's kind of its own thing, I guess. Like I can't say that I necessarily love turkey hunting more than meal deer hunting or something like that. But, um, it's when I'm in the zone in the spring, it, it's, it's all about the turkeys day and night. I, I go to bed thinking about turkeys, wake up thinking about turkeys, and it's been that way for a long time. So um, it was also a void kind of in what we offer for content through HuntStand. So we just figured it made sense to, to start getting aggressive with that. We have a, a good audience that, uh, you know, through our app users that, you know, there can never be enough content. And so we just decided that, we needed to do a turkey series. So that's that's what we did. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that I love about turkey hunting so much is that it doesn't interfere with any other seasons. Like, I'm not doing anything in the spring. Like, I fish a little bit, but turkey hunting is just that perfect. Like, I've got my hangover from the whitetail season over, and then it's just time to hunt something in the spring. And it's just, it's absolutely perfect. That's a It's a great time. Yeah, it's magical. And uh hell, even with the even with the influx of people from COVID, I mean it's still I know a lot of people had challenging seasons and there's a lot of different things going on with wild turkeys right now nationwide that um I mean a lot of the numbers are down and they're trying to get a handle on on what exactly um the root cause of that is. I mean I th I think just like with anything with wildlife management, there isn't a single reason. Um everybody wants to have a, to be able to point to one thing and have a simple solution. But I think there's a multitude of factors that are affecting wild turkey populations. I also think that perhaps uh, for a while there, maybe we were in an unnatural bubble because um, populations were extremely high hunter success and harvest rates were extremely high. But uh, regardless, whether numbers are down or um, regardless of hunter participants, participation being up or whether we we're in a bubble or not turkey hunting is still super accessible um very high odds of of being successful and it's just a it's a great hunt and you know the fact that they're vocal you know a measure of success is being able to go out there and even just hear one you know if you're if you're in the game yeah absolutely that's interesting that you talked about the the decline in population because here in Oklahoma, especially in the western part of the state, we had a really good turkey population, and uh, the the ODWC came out this year and said that they're estimating that fifty the population is down fifty percent in the last two years, and it's just super sad because I've got a friend that he had a uh, a roost of like five hundred birds, and he said out of those five hundred, he probably had like fifty or sixty toms, and they're saying they're down to like fifteen or twenty toms out of that entire roost now. And they're doing some stuff as far as like 
uh, they're proposing in this in this year that they're going to take the statewide limit, I think, down from three turkeys to one in the entire state. I mean, some changes definitely have to be made, and it is state by state. It's region by region, and there's there's so many things that can influence turkey populations, and especially um, more of the, the dry states like Oklahoma and Texas water has so much to do with it. I mean, one bad drought year or let alone some consecutive bad drought years, the nesting success can be dismal. So um, those dry states are accustomed to having pretty big fluctuations, but you know, people see several good years. They, I hate to use this term because I, I hate COVID, but they see it kind of as the new normal per se with mm-hmm. their population. And then it goes down and, and that's what I'm saying, like with the bubble, um, even if it's not nationwide, just um, anecdotally state to state or region to region, people think that when it gets really good, it should just stay that way. But these fluctuations happen for a lot of reasons. It could be the moisture. It could be the the pressure from predators. And that usually comes in peaks and troughs, depending on, um, you know, usually there's a lot of predators there's a lot of prey and then they'll eat a lot of prey and then the predators move on somewhere else or their population will go down and the prey will come back up so you got that you've got nesting cover food sources um disease to a certain extent uh hunter harvest like there's all these different things like everything is working against turkeys like all the time it's amazing that those things can even survive given given their just day-to-day lifestyle but uh, either way, I think turkey hunting is is one of the most accessible, most rewarding, like um, just greatest greatest hunting experiences you can have. Even if you gotta struggle a little bit. I mean, we had some really tremendous hunts this spring, um, just across the board. But don't get me wrong, man. We we had our days, and we had our our blocks of days where we just grinded as hard as possible and just couldn't make anything happen. So that's yeah, it's hunting. Yeah. So I had a I had a group of buddies that went down to hunt uh Florida Osceolas. I saw that I think you were hunting Osceolas this year. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I try to make that an annual thing. Um I've never done a public land Osceola turkey hunt. I don't know what I don't know where your friends went. But, uh, yeah, Osceolas are a great way to kick off the season. Um, if you've got – the biggest thing about the public land hunts is you really got to set aside some time um, if you want if you want to be successful. Or you got to look at some of the uh, – there, there are actually some areas in Florida, public areas, where they have, like, limited entry. So they're more controlled hunts. Um, and I've heard that those can be better just because there's less hunter, hunter pressure. But uh, yeah, that's the big thing for me is I don't I don't have a week or a week and a half to set aside in the spring during that time frame to go down and, and try to grind it out on public land. I'd like to do it sometime when I have more time. But for me, the value of those days is worth just paying to be able to hunt somewhere mm-hmm. where the birds aren't getting run through the ringer. Um, you're going to have some great encounters. You're probably going to shoot a bird. Um, there's always that, that cost benefit, you know? Yeah. Well, they, they went down and they flew in, uh, from, from Oklahoma. And I think they hunted for a week and 
they didn't even hear a gobble. They didn't hear a bird, see any tracks of a bird, nothing. And the first thing they said when they came back was, I'm not, I'm going to a limited entry unit when I go back. I'm not going to this public unit ever again. I think they were like an hour north of Miami in one of those big, I think it's a national forest, but they just got absolutely smacked for an entire week. And I think that was the most discouraged I've ever seen a group of turkey hunters. That's the thing, man. Um, I probably get some, some flack for saying stuff like this, but um, you want to talk about the surge in popularity of public land hunting and the promotion of it and whatnot. Um, you know, that's, that's some complicated territory right there because the, the public land movement really came out of the Western United States. The Western United States is a completely different landscape and dynamic than the Eastern United States. But now it's spread coast to coast and the, the popularity of it, the promotion of it, um, their public land hunting is the norm in the West. You know, there's mm -hmm. so much ground out there between state ground and BLM and other types of federal and whatnot, uh, forest service areas, our national forest type stuff. I mean, public land out there is the norm. You get down into the Southeast and especially like Florida. Okay. Yeah. There's a decent amount of public ground down there, but relative to the amount of hunting pressure, it's a completely different ball game. So everybody preaches this, this big sermon about hunting public land. And you really got to ask yourself, um, depending on where you're going to go and what you're trying to pursue, does it really make sense? What kind of experience do you want to have? Do you want to go hunt somewhere for a week and not hear a turkey? Is that a, is that a good experience to you? If it is, great. But and, and you know, some people would be would be perfectly happy with that. They got to get out there. They got to go hunt. For me personally, um, a lot of the success of my hunt is based on at least encounters. Or interactions with with the animals that i'm going after i want to be able to at least see them that's why i'm going to do it to, to get an experience with that species so with those florida turkeys don't get me wrong I'm, I'm, this isn't a cop-out a lot of guys are successful and um you know whether they're great turkey hunters or just marginal turkey hunters you can go down there and kill turkeys but you're going to take a week week and a half off of work to go down there and not hear a turkey when you could probably do an outfitted hunt with everything covered for $2,000 and have a really good chance at seeing turkeys, shooting a turkey, being able to, to see them acting natural in their environment where they're not just terrified of every visual and sound that they encounter. Mm -hmm. You, you got to ask yourself that. I mean, it's, I think people get clouded with this, this idea of hunting public land and then their uh, expectations aren't managed properly. And they go out and they do, they go try to do certain hunts on public land that can be really discouraging because they expect the end result to be totally different. And you, know, it, you, you just gotta, you gotta look at the individual hunt and be realistic about it. Um, whereas there's certain hunts I wouldn't want to do on private land. Just mm -hmm. because you're actually limiting yourself depending on where you are. So I just think it's important for people to manage their expectations and know what they're getting into 
versus just buying into um, a lot of the the content that we see. Yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty wise assessment. Uh, I mean, I was watching one of the hunting public's videos, and they were talking with a I think a biologist out of Georgia, and they were saying one of the uh, the number one uh, metric for hunter satisfaction is birds gobbling, and when I'm hunting turkeys that are gobbling there's nothing better that's some of the most fun hunting that you're ever going to do but when turkeys aren't acting like a turkey they're not that fun to hunt when they're coming in quiet when you're peeking over a ridge and there's 20 of them packed up in a you know a group the size of a freaking pop can you're just like what's going on here these aren't these things aren't acting like turkeys and that's one of the things it's such a case-by-case basis on you know what's your experience going to be like? And are you going to be happy with that? Are you okay with shoot, you know, creeping over a ridge and shooting a bird that's not goblin? Yeah. And it, it really is case by case. Um, I mean, going out to Colorado or Nebraska or Wyoming to go hunt antelope or mule deer on public land is an entirely different thing than going, going down to Florida and trying to, they're just different things. So, um, you, you can't expect that you're going to get the same result with two different things. So, yeah, I mean, it's people just just need to really do their homework and evaluate what the what they want out of the experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're running up here close on time. But uh, so if anyone wants to connect with you or connect with HuntStand or download the app, where can they do that? Uh, if you want to connect with me, it's uh, on Instagram at the Hunger Official. Otherwise, uh, HuntStand is just at HuntStand on Instagram and uh, HuntStand.com, HuntStandMedia.com. Um, we will be launching a new website very soon. Uh, I can't say a lot about that right now, but you'll you'll be able to find that at HuntStand.com, and of course, uh, you'll find our app on the. Google Play Store or the App Store for for iOS. We have a lot of new features that we've introduced in the last year within the app, and we've got some new ones coming down the pike this year that are really exciting, including one that should be released within the next couple of weeks that uh, unfortunately at this moment I can't say a lot about, but I can say uh, competitively we're going to be releasing a, a, a map feature that nobody has done yet. And it's something our users have been asking us for, for years. And we finally figured out how to make that happen. Um, let's just say we're going to have, we're going to have the best imagery, um, arguably the best imagery out of any mapping product. And so I really encourage your listeners to, to keep an eye on that because when we do reveal it, it's going to be a big deal. It's going to have a lot of implications for hunters and land managers. Well, that sounds awesome, Josh. Uh, as always, thanks for thanks for jumping on with me, man. And I, I look forward to doing another episode with you at some point in the future. Likewise, thanks for chatting. Hey guys, thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it, and we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next. 